thank you for joining us today for our session on data sharing, data access, and data spaces, uh, where we discuss the free flow of data or and access restriction that exists. And um, before we start, just some housekeeping notes. Um, if you want to pose a Q&A, we will probably not be able to answer it during the session because it's quite short. But um, if you pose one, we will follow up with you individually uh, by email. And otherwise, you can use the usual functions for chatting and uh, the notes. Um, data, move this slide, please. Um, data has been described essentially as the oil of the 21st century and simply using that metaphor to say um, that it is a valuable resource that drives innovation and drives competition. Um, on, this, on an abstract level, this applies with regard to personal data, so data on individuals, but also on non-personal data that is generated by machines or the like. Um, and being a valuable resource begs the question of ownership and also of access to that resource. Um, while there is a lot of legal discussion around things like ownership and access rights, at the end of the day, currently we see that the factual control over a certain set of data determines who gets access and on what terms. This has been addressed in legislation, but so far we don't see a uniform approach in the current landscape, but rather very specific rules that address specific issues in specific sectors. And while we show you some details that highlight that, on an EU level, you have issues like the vehicle regulation that grants access to repair and maintenance information for um, individual workshops against manufacturers. You have more like the type of infrastructure access claims, which we see, for example, in the electricity markets or for payment services where individual companies try to gain access to an underlying infrastructure and also data to use. Or you have issues like you see in uh, the chemicals in the REACH regulation or the pharmaceuticals, where companies that want a certain um, approval from a state authority can use data that has been generated elsewhere simply to avoid, for example, doing clinical trials in the case of generics or the like. And lastly, more like an indirect access claim you have in the GDPR individuals' rights to data portability in order to ease switching services. Um, the national level is not different, where you have, again, different solutions for different problems. You see in Freedom for Information Acts or in copyright laws, where you have access claims for, to APIs for interoperability reasons or fair use claims in, for research, and then very specific procedural instruments in litigation where you need access to certain sets of data as evidence in those proceedings. Um, and lastly, probably what we have and the most common thing or the closest thing to a, a cross-sector access claim, probably in competition law, but again, with very high hurdles. So, it can be that certain sets of data qualify as an essential facility, so people seek access to those data against the holder of the data. In short, the requirements are you need to hold a dominant market position. So competition lawyers will tell you that's roughly 40% market share, but in certain sets, it could also be lower if there is no other way to access that particular data. And then the question arises, 
if the refusal to, of the access is an abusive practice. And again, the requirements, if you want to abstract them, are it needs to be non-duplicable. You need to have this access for an um, upstream or downstream market, so not on the same market. And this refusal forecloses competition on that market. So again, if you want to take the example of the repair shops with the vehicles, that's very instructive. So the manufacturer would deny the access and hinder competition on the repair or the vehicle repair market. And then the question of justification arises. Um, and besides this very general EU framework that is set also in various uh, and settled case law, like the IMS Health uh, decision or the Microsoft decision from the EU courts, you have underlying national laws for example, in Germany, that have lower requirements when it comes to a dominant market position. But at the end of the day, you end up with rules that have balancing exercises and questions around, um, yeah, still relatively high hurdles to enforce these access claims. And this is the point when you look at the current landscapes where new EU tools and new EU regulations and uh, or legislative uh, initiatives come into play, such as the Data Act or the proposal for the Data Governance Act that will enhance potentially the access claims that people have or, or companies have against each other in order to continue driving innovation and having access to the resources of data. Um, I will now hand over to Alex, who will give us some additional insight on the new legislation. Thank you. Thanks very much, Martin. Uh, yes, so um, as Martin said, we, we have proposals in the EU for this new Data Act and Data Governance Act. Actually, they sit within uh, something of a rising tide over the last couple of years in the EU of digital and data related uh, legislation that is coming through. Uh, so we've got Digital Markets Act, Digital Services Act, then alongside them, implementing the European Data Strategy, published in 2020, we have the uh, Data Act and the Data Governance Act. They're draft EU regulations, meaning that once enacted, they would have direct effect in EU member states in the same way that the GDPR did. Um, I'm going to talk about the Data Act, and then Killian uh, will take over and talk about the Data Governance Act. So if we can uh, turn now to the next slide and focus on, on the Data Act. In essence, the fundamental purpose of the Data Act is uh, to unlock the value of data uh, and to enable greater competition in digital markets and promote greater levels of data-driven innovation. Now, the data that's being covered by the Data Act is broadly defined, so it goes way beyond uh, for instance, the, the, the concept of personal data that's covered by the GDPR. Uh, it's much broader than that. It covers any digital representation of acts, facts, or information, or any compilation of data of those types, um, including where any of that uh, information is in the form of sound, or visual, or audiovisual recordings. So you can see it's it's really broadly cast. Um, uh, and and there's a number of, uh, if we can move to the next slide, there's a number of um, obligations that hook off uh, that type of data. 
And I'm going to focus primarily on, sorry, if we can go back, please, Killian. I'm going to focus primarily on uh, the B2C and B2B data sharing uh, parts of that, as that's the, the topic for this uh, session. Um, but you can see that there are also rules around switching between uh, cloud service providers and data access for public institutions um, and so on. Um, so yeah, if we can go uh, onto the next slide. And before getting into the, uh, some of the detail around the, the B2B and B2C data sharing um, uh, rules proposed in the Data Act, it's worth noting that the Data Act is going to form part of a fairly complex regulatory environment when it comes to treatment of data. So um, the Data Act, as you'll see in a second, has provisions regarding data portability and information about how data is used. And of course, they will sit, have to sit alongside similar rules in the GDPR around data portability and information rights, but then other uh, types of legislation that are listed here on the slides that can also interact with that type of data and how you're using it. So there's going to be a fairly complex landscape for people to navigate. Um, uh, the data sharing uh, requirements apply to products and related services. And again, these are broadly defined terms. A product is any item that collects or generates data concerning its use or environment, where that product is able to communicate that data via an electronic communications network, but where the primary function of that product is not the storing or processing of data. So it would pick up, for example, uh, connected devices, um, you know, like home uh, assistants, uh, for example, which collect and generate data. They communicate that data via a network, but they're not solely about the storing and processing of that data. And the rules also relate to related services. And these are digital services and software uh, incorporated in or related to one of those products. And it will be critical for businesses to determine whether they're providing, uh, manufacturing one of these uh, defined products or related services uh, that are subject to the Data Act, because there are important obligations that impact on product design and interaction with customers. So for example, um, one of the principles that has to be followed is data accessibility by design and also information requirements, rather like GDPR privacy notices that will have to be given by um, those uh, uh, distributing um, products and related services. So let's turn now to the data sharing uh, elements of the Data Act. Um, Article four of the proposed Data Act creates a broad data portability right for users, uh, both consumer users and business users. And um, as you can see there, what it says is that um, providers of products and related services must enable a right of access to data without undue delay, free of charge, and where applicable, continuously and in real time. And it certainly strikes me that those final aspects, uh, continuously and in real time, potentially quite challenging uh, for uh, businesses caught by the Data Act. Um, so that Article 4 is about sharing of data with the, the user of the product. Um, Article 5 is about en enabling the sharing of data 
with third parties, uh, third party providers of other products and services. And it's this uh, obligation and right that is intended to enable greater competition because it would enable the sharing of data uh, more directly between one provider of connected products and services uh, to another. But it's worth noting that um, there are provisions designed to stop both users and third parties from using the, the data that's shared to develop competing uh, products and services uh, with the, um, the third party, uh, with the party that's sharing the data. And then the final thing um, to note before I hand over to, to Killian to talk, talk about the Data Governance Act um, is, uh, if we can go to that, thanks, uh, Killian, um, is that uh, unlike the GDPR uh, data portability requirements, um, which where, where data just has to be made available to the, the data subject um, uh, uh, sort of freely and, and without condition, um, there is the ability under the Data Act to impose terms and conditions but they must be FRAND terms and conditions. They must be fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory. Um, and there is also the ability for businesses to charge reasonable fees um, for providing the data either to users or third-party providers, but only so far as is necessary um, to recover costs associated with making the data available. So no profit element in that. Um, so you can see from these um, uh, this very brief summary that there's potentially some challenges here for businesses that are providing relevant products and services, but also opportunity in the sense uh, that uh, businesses will be able to rely on these rights to uh, enable um, them to provide uh, competitive products and services. So with that, I'm going to hand over to Killian uh, to talk to you, to you about the Data Governance Act. Thank you, Alex, and hello, everyone. The next piece of legislation we're going to look at, as Alex just told you, is the Data Governance Act. Like the Data Act, the Data Governance Act is an EU regulation. And the first thing to know about the Data Governance Act is that it does not contain data access rights, but rather will provide framework conditions for data access and data sharing. The Data Governance Act is aimed at creating a single European market for data, but data access rights will still be determined by other laws, like the Data Act and or competition law, as we have just now heard. Um, the Data Governance Act has three major areas of focus. These are reuse of protected data held by public sector bodies, data intermediation services, Providers of data intermediation services can be imagined as data sharing marketplaces and provisions around data altruism, that is voluntary sharing of data. This is of course supplemented by provisions on competent authorities and the like. And the Data Governance Act also establishes a European Data Innovation Board. This will be an expert group which will give advice and will develop guidelines. Let us take a closer look at the Data Governance Act's provisions around the reuse of public sector data. What data are we talking about? We're talking about data that is subject to third-party rights, so personal data, including sensitive data like health data, for example, data that is confidential, for example, trade secrets, or data that is protected by copyright. 
As I mentioned, the Data Governance Act only provides a framework, but it does not create obligations for public sector bodies to share their data. And existing requirements like confidentiality requirements still need to be observed. Because these requirements like confidentiality need to be complied with, the Data Governance Act says that public authorities who do share their data need to implement certain safeguards. For example, by allowing the data to be processed only in secure environment, environments, um, by only providing aggregated data, and always by having users commit to confidentiality obligations too. If you, as a company, would like to access public sector data under the Data Governance Act, you will not have to ask each public sector body whether they are willing to share their data. Instead, it will be possible to look this up in central databases called single information points. These single information points will be established on a national level. And then also on EU level, these national databases will be pooled in a single access point. If a public sector body grants access to its data, it must do so in a non-discriminatory way. And exclusivity agreements, that means an agreement that gives a company exclusive access to certain data, to the data of one public sector body, these exclusivity agreements are only possible for a term of 12 months maximum. And existing exclusivity agreements will be given a use-by date, an expiry date. They will terminate two and a half years after the Data Governance Act has entered into force. Lastly, after um, the reuse of public sector body data, lastly, some words on data intermediation services and data altruism organizations. Both, both of these types of organizations um, or both of these sets of provisions around these organizations are aimed at bringing, together, bringing data owners together with potential data users. These data owners can be companies or individuals. The data users can also be companies or, for example, also medical scientists that for purposes of, purposes of clinical research use data that patients have provided voluntarily. Both types of intermediaries have to fulfill certain standards like um, secure processing and uh, fair access. And um, they can register with the competent authority. After having registered with the competent authority, they can use the title data intermediation services provider recognized in the union or data altruism organization recognized in the union respectively. So um, um, they, uh, this, this logo, um, this title and this logo they can also use um, provides for a certain reliability. In all, we see that also under these new regulations, there is no general data access right in the EU and there will not be in the, in the next few years as far as these regulations are concerned, at least. The Data Governance Act provides for a framework for different types of data sharing, but does not provide any access rights in itself. 
the Data Act, on the other hand, contains some pretty powerful data access rights, but these are mainly focused on connected devices and related services. The Data Governance Act is to be enacted soon and will be effective probably sometime in autumn next year. The Data Act is still in its early stages, as you have seen um, above uh, the the draft of it was published in February and will probably not be effective before the end of 2024. Thank you. Great, thanks very much, uh, Killian. Um, I think that takes us to the end of our time with you. I hope that was a useful, if brief, um, overview. There is more information about both the Data Act and the Data Governance Act on our website. So you can go there and find in our insights section uh, some summaries of, of both things. Um, please do uh, provide some feedback by uh, rating this session. Please click on the feedback icon to do that. Uh, and I believe now you're going into a short break. Um, do visit the take a break section. And uh, there you can engage in a virtual art tour, uh, explore some of our uh, solutions content and uh, and hear more about our products. Um, sessions will resume at uh, 1.35 CET or 12.35 uh, BST uh, with a session on regulation of distributed ledger technology, a Swiss perspective, and you can access that session via the agenda tab. We do hope you enjoy the rest of the event and thank you very much for joining us. Our vision in Germany is strongly based on closer relationships with our clients as a solution-driven law firm and basically as their empathic business partner who thinks and acts in the interest of its clients. How exactly are we planning to achieve that? Well, in order to turn this vision into reality, we've come up with an approach which basically consists of three different pillars. The first one is increasing awareness on solutions capabilities internally and externally. We believe that innovation awareness or awareness on our innovative capabilities is a necessity for innovative engagement. And innovative engagement in turn is a necessity to embody the law firm of tomorrow. The second point or the second pillar is um, basically Proactivity in developing smarter solutions for our clients. And the interesting part in this one is the proactivity bit, which basically requires us to become method actors to some extent, because we have to empathize with the situation our clients find themselves in, in order to understand and identify challenges and to come up with a way to, to tackle and address those challenges for our clients. And the third pillar is um, continuous application of technological capabilities in order to polish up our service delivery um, so that it basically embodies the service delivery of a law firm of the next generation. By putting together those, those pillars, um, we believe that we are capable of basically handling everything that uh, the future throws at us. We see that legal tech has a huge impact on our daily work as a lawyer. Sabrina, how do you think has legal tech an impact on your daily work? 
It has a huge impact, actually. A couple of years ago, I started to get involved into legal tech because I personally believe that legal tech will be an important part of a lawyer's profession in the future. So, Daniel, if you have an idea with regard to legal tech, what would be your first step then? My first step would be to contact our innovation manager within Simmons, as he has the overview of all the processes and tools we can use within the firm to bring a, a digital project or innovative project to life. Perfect. Actually, just last week, I was on a big BD trip in Germany, and in quite a few conversations, clients mentioned legal tech and their ideas with regard to legal tech, but quite often, they don't have the resources like an innovation manager, a solutions, or a wavelength team in-house in order to pursue their ideas. And I believe this could be a big opportunity to help them for us too. So I think at the end of the day, an innovation manager really makes a difference with regard to mentality change within the firm, but also with regard to clients. Couldn't agree more.